Today's reading is from Mark, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might go with them. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Charles. Well, if, uh, if you are new, um, we've been going through the, the Gospel of Mark, and uh, last week was a really cool week for us. Um, we did our, our first uh, baptism Sunday. It was, I mean, it was a cool deal. Matter of fact, um, if you are here and you were baptized last week, I know a couple people are already gone for the summer, but can you stand up real quick? Don't be embarrassed. Can you stand up last week if you were baptized? There you go. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, guys. We, we, uh, we had eight people baptized, uh, three of which were, were planned, and then five people were, were um, spontaneously baptized. They went and had a conversation, and we, uh, we did it. It was a, a really cool deal. Um, now, in the middle of that, right before that, actually, um, we had had this conversation um, through the Gospel of Mark about Jesus on this sea. And, and if, if this is your first time or you're just catching up, um, we're going through the, the Gospel of Mark verse by verse by verse. And we're doing this intentionally. And I've said this every week. Um, so maybe this is the first time you've heard it. Maybe this is the hundredth. But we're doing the Gospel of Mark. And for us, it's great because from our very first week, us being a church that's only three months old, meeting on Sundays, we wanted to ask the question, if we're going to be about Jesus, then let's ask the question, who is Jesus? And Mark provides a great opportunity for us to find out those answers because the gospel of Mark essentially creates this crazy paradigm where we as the readers know who Jesus is, but the people who are in the story don't. Okay, And he, he does this all the way through and, until we get to the very end of the gospel. But the demons, specifically, you'll find out today, also know this truth. And so it's this crazy woven, so let's see how Jesus acts when people are not proclaiming and they're wondering who this guy is. And so we were asking that question. And last week we specifically found out that it is Jesus who has all authority, as he's already shown over and over and over in bringing this kingdom, that he even has authority over the wind and the waves, the sea, the problems, and he very much desperately does care 
about the fact that you are perishing. Okay? Now, when he arrives, so they're in this boat in the storm, the, the storm settles. They're in the Sea of Galilee. Our story's going to pick up when he arrives to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Okay? And so that's where we have our text today, if, it, um, if that all makes sense. So let's pick it up from verse 1. We're, we're uh, turning the page to a new chapter in Mark, um, chapter 5, verse 1. This is what it says. It says, they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. So this is actually the first time that Jesus will step on non-Israelite territory. This is a non-Jewish area. So that means basically the, the traditions and the pharisaical ideas that we've been talking about aren't going to be as predominant here as they have been. As he crosses the Sea of Galilee, he's going into an area that is relatively non-Jewish, okay? This is what it says in verse 2. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been, uh, often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So here's the picture. Jesus just calmed the storm, and as he, he arrives on the shore, there's a dude who's afar off, and, and whatever this is going on with this guy, as, as Jesus walks for, um, closer and closer, we begin to find out more details about this man. There's kind of four or five things that we can recognize. First, if, look in verse 3. He lives among the tombs. So the first thing that we see about this, this interaction between Jesus and this non-Jewish area is Jesus is going to interact with this man who's living amongst dead people. Okay? He's hanging out in the graveyard. He's amongst dead people. The second thing, also in verse 3, he's often, look at that word often, often been bound by shackles and chains, but then all, chains. And also look at the next part, but he wretches them loose because he's strong. So Jesus is rolling up. There's a man who's sitting there living amongst dead people, and everyone, or at least most people in this town, have tried to shackle him and chain him down because the dude's crazy. But he's super strong, and so he breaks these chains, he breaks these shackles. And, and you find out in verse 5, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out. Literally, you could translate this, this word, howling, and it also says he's cutting himself with stones. So let's put ourselves in the context here very quickly. Jesus arrives on the scene, and there is this man who people in this town recognize as the crazy guy. Okay? And he's the crazy guy that lives amongst tombs in the graveyard. He's sitting there howling out. He's naked and he's cutting himself. And he's talking to himself. And he is, uh, uh, you know, according to this town, he's that guy. He, he's the dude who's the crazy one. So much so that they're willing to try to shackle him down so he doesn't bother anyone else. I, I, um, I remember when, you know, when I was growing up in Sunny Slope. Um, there's a place right across the street from this uh, Mountain View Elementary School called the Country Market. I don't know if it's there anymore, but the place was legit, right? You know, bad mayonnaise and subs and all that stuff. But um, So I lived probably, I don't know, a quarter mile from there, and, and uh, um, I you know, would walk there all the time. But where, where I was staying, we were staying with some people, and um, they lived right next to like a, a mentally disabled um, uh, hospital. And they let one of the guys in, in that hospital um, um, walk from there, from basically our house, to the country market. He'd, let, he'd get to walk there a couple times a day. And he was this Vietnamese guy. And I remember very specifically, he would walk up and down this road, and he would just be yelling in Vietnamese the whole time. He's just yelling, yelling. And, and we were like 9 or 10, so we'd try to yell at something. And he would look at us, and he'd yell, you know, and 
And, and obviously, in no way making fun of his mental disability, but here's what's crazy. He would walk up and down these streets, and everyone knew. No one ever goes like, you know, shut up. No one ever told Crazy Bill that he needs to stop. We just knew. Everyone in the area knew that this guy was walking, and he was going to talk, talk to himself from the morning. He would have this early morning walk, a walk after lunch to go to a country market, and then he'd also have a walk towards the evening. And everyone knew we would hear at some point in the day this crazy man. There was this kind of neighborhood understanding that this guy was crazy, and he was walking back and forth. And there's this picture of this guy. Everyone in this town knows there's some crazy dude who lives amongst the tombs who is essentially trying to kill himself, cutting himself. He's naked. He's howling. He's crazy, and we know that. And so they try to shackle him up. Well, Jesus arrives on the scene, and this man sees Jesus. And so this is where the story picks up. In, uh, in verse 6, and when he saw Jesus from afar, the man who's crazy, that everyone knows is crazy, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Literally in the NLT, that part, he, he asked, uh, what are you doing here? He says, why are you interfering with me? So Jesus arrives on the scene. This man immediately runs up, falls at his feet and, and we can't see it, but we can see there's this kind of interaction back and forth because it says he keeps saying, come out of him. Like Jesus is looking at this man. He's looking at this, this man who's full of demons. We'll find out in a second. And he's saying, come out of him. And the man's like, no, no, no. I jure you. Literally, I command you by God. What are you doing here? Please stop, stop. He recognizes that Jesus has this authority over him. And there's this kind of like weird conversation going on. Last night, um, uh, we were eating these lettuce wraps that Candace made. And um, the boys knew they I made a deal with them that they, for every lettuce wrap, they got to eat these gluten-free, sugar-free, taste-free Newman O Oreos. And um, and every, every lettuce wrap they got to eat, they got to eat two. And, and I'm having a conversation with Titus, and he's like, well, what if I just eat the lettuce? Or what if I just eat the meat? He's, he's trying to negotiate the terms of the Numino. And, and um, Numen, it's an, listen, it's Oreos, people. Candace, it's Oreos, not Numen. Okay, so um, I, what is a Numino? Um, but that's what they're called. Um, so there's these numinos, and Titus is trying to negotiate, and, and, and there's this kind of similar interaction, right? The, the demons are like, what are you, why are you here? Please don't cast us out. She's saying, get out, get out. And, and eventually, um, Jesus asked this question in this interaction, what's your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out into the country. So very quickly, Mark goes from the singular pronouns to these plural pronouns, doesn't he? So he immediately goes from me, 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 this demon, to we. I mean, let, let, let's look at it again. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he, one person, replied, my name, my name is, not our name, my name is Legion, for we are many, right? So suddenly there's this, whoa. Like, it's not just a man filled with de- a, a demon. It's a man filled with many demons. And he says, uh, my name is Legion. And, and, and maybe you don't know a, a lot. A Legion, at least in the Jewish mind, would conjure up at least 6,000 foot soldiers. So this is just technicalities, right? Like in the Roman, uh, um, in the, in the, the Roman army, you have for a legion, at least 600 foot soldiers, about 150 uh, dudes on horses, and probably another couple hundred guys of technical services, medic, whatever it is. You're looking at about 7,000 people. Um, and in the mind, when you say legion, they're thinking mass destruction, lots of people, but more than that, very orderly. 
Like they're thinking ordered chaos. They're thinking these guys are brute forces, but, but they are in control of what they are doing. And he says, I am legion. We, we are many inside this man. So very intentionally knowing what he's doing, how he's taking this man out slowly but surely. And Jesus continues to have this conversation with him, right? And so this is what it says in uh, verse 11, after he says he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Verse 11 says, now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, so now the, the demons are begging him, uh, saying, send us into the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. So the, the, the man sitting there says, there's some pigs over there, um, send us into those pigs. And Jesus says, fine. Now, immediately the question is going to go, <laughs> so Why? Like I, and I'm t- I've read, not over-exaggerating, this week trying to figure out the answer to this question, probably over 30 commentaries. Like, and, and, and most of them would agree, and some of them, but probably 10 to 12 different opinions on this. And, and here's what I'm going to say, um, why he allows them to send them into pigs. I have no idea, okay? So there's these pigs, and the demon's like, hey, send us into these pigs. There's these 2,000 pigs over there. And Jesus is like, fine. Okay, I, I have no idea. There's tons of debate as to why he does this, but he, he, he sends them, gives them permission, and the unclean spirits come and they enter the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep, steep bank into the sea and drowned the sea. So we're going to break up our passage today because it's a large passage into two parts, and we're going to stop right here and just talk about something very quickly because here's the truth of what just took place. Um, a man who's cutting himself naked, howling at the moon, meets Jesus. He has a, a bunch of demons in him. Jesus casts these demons into pigs. Those pigs show their true colors of what they plan to do with this man in that they run these pigs off a cliff into the water, drowning the pigs, killing the pigs, and then here is this man, okay? Um, and for us, we do have to stop here because there is a huge disconnect from the way we experience life to this story. I mean, if you think about it, if a dude was to roll in through that exit door right there, he was to come into onto the stage and he was naked and he was cutting himself and he was howling. And I'm just being real honest. No one would think demons like maybe some of you rose up in the the charismatic movement. You're you're going there quickly, but for the most part, and, and just to be honest, our culture, we're thinking the dude either forgot to take his medication. He has a mental disability, whatever it is. We are not associating that type of picture with demonic activity. Okay? And I'm not saying all mental disability is demonic activity. My point is we've removed ourselves as a culture from this idea that there is a spiritual world. And because you're in church, and, and maybe you're not a Christian here, I'm going to talk very quickly about that spiritual world, specifically and I, about the demonic world. Because we have to read this story and go, what is this? Like, I don't experience this every day. I mean, there's not demons rolling into dogs, or there's not guys walking around who are howling at the moons that, that we would say are demonic. We have no way to associate with this. Matter of fact, um, a guy named uh, uh, Rudolf Boltman, he has a, a quote in regards to talking about stories like in this New Testament, and I think our culture can resonate with this. This is what he says. Um, these, talking about stories of the demonic, were ancient myths that the New Testament message had to be demythologized by removing such uh, uh, mythological elements so that the gospel could be received by modern scientific people. So the the idea is because it doesn't make sense, we read a story like this, we immediately, uh, and I'm telling you, I used to immediately go, well, that's stupid. That's not real. Demons in a man? 
And it like, are you, and it's full. Like the Bible's full of this stuff. Okay. And uh, Wayne Grudem has a great response to this in his huge book. He's a professor at Phoenix Seminary um, in his huge book, Systematic Theology. And he, he goes through this. And when he gets to the, the, um, uh, the theology on demons, this is how he responds specifically to, to Boltman's uh, quote. He says this, If the scripture gives us a true account of the world as it really is, then we must take seriously its portrayal of intense demonic involvement in human society. Our failure to prevent that involvement with our five... Uh, uh, perceive, sorry, to perceive uh, that involvement with our five senses simply tells us that we have some deficiencies in our ability to understand the world, not that demons do not exist. In fact, there is no reason to think that there is any less demonic activity in the world today than there was in the time of the New Testament. So let me just explain very quickly what, what I'm trying to put in front of us. Um, I read a book um, a couple months ago called Biblical Ethics and Social Change by a guy named Stephen Mott. And he argues that the very world, that the, and he says the, the fabric or the fibers in the way our society is woven together is being swayed by demonic forces. Now, lest I come off as some crazy Southern Baptist preacher saying every nail and every stub toe is the devil, my, my point is that very, very, very true statement of the devil is alive and well, and he is actively actively present in everyone's life in one way or the other is a true statement. Okay. Now, um, man, when I got saved, uh, I got saved in the charismatic world. Okay. And it was like an overextension of everything. I mean, I've, you know, I, we were in moments, we were in moments where like, um, we had an Indian reservation one time and the, the, there was a woman pastor. And then the man came up, the, the husband of the pastor came up and, um, he, he came up and we were doing this church service with him. He's like, all right, well, there's demons here. We need, to, we need to anoint all the babies. So he was going around to all the kids and putting anointing oil on their head. And I was like, you know, he says, help me understand why. He's like, so the demons can't enter them. And I'm sitting there going, if that's stopping the demons, then give me some of that on my head, okay? Like the idea that like we're just, and I'm like, why are we only stopping the children from getting demons, Okay. <laughs> Yeah, but, but this was like, this was the world that we lived in. I mean, this is my wife and I, and a lot, a lot of our friends, like this was the, the light that the charismatic world, you don't have to argue. I don't have to stop. Like I do here in the reform world to go, Hey, demons are real. And specifically, man, other countries, when I was in Ghana, there's no argument about as to whether or not demons are real. Demons are very, very real. Okay. So let me just biblically, if nothing else, because maybe again, you're not a Christian in here and you would say that's that's stupid. That's silly. So right, right. In, in that sense, then you would go, but at least you could not disagree biblically. This is um, some verses. I, I've tried to do a good job of laying out verses when I have a point like this. And so this is one of those times. If you were, you don't have to go there, but Ephesians six, this is what it says in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So the devil has schemes. This is what the Bible's saying. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the, hear this, rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Hear what he said in verse 12, uh, the cosmic powers over this present darkness. So the Bible just put a verse in front of us to say, there is this overarching tone that says, Something has interjected itself into the kingdom of God. Something has interjected itself into this earth, this, this uh, God of this world, and he is, he is moving. And, and, and Mott, Stephen Mott, that book, Biblical Ethics for Social Change, argues, take like corrupt cor- um, um, corporations, for example. So if you have a corporation of 100 people, if you have this corporation of 100 people and they're doing evil things, you look at them and go, that's an evil corporation. 
Okay, but, but check it out. If you were to remove one person and another and another and another, you were to slowly over the span of 30 years take all 100 people out of that organization and replace them with new people, that organization would still continue to be evil. So what's evil? So, so, so what, is it the people? Because you remove the people, but the organization continues to stay evil. So maybe they're interacting in evil. There's something more, and the Bible calls it this cosmic power over this age. There are things that we are dealing with that your five senses can't comprehend. This is the biblical truth that we have to stand in front of as Christians. He, more verses, just so, so we're clear. A um, couple, couple of them, John 8, uh, 44 says this. Um, Satan is a liar. He's the father of lies. In Revelation 12, 9, it says he's here to deceive the whole world. In Psalm 106, 37, he's called a murderer. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it says the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. So, so for your unbelieving friends, or maybe you're an unbeliever in here, what the Bible would say, specifically, the reason that you continue to struggle and don't see God is because the God of this world has blinded. Like, he's, he's not allowing you to see the gospel, okay? That this is, this is what is taking place. Though there are natural um, uh, reactions and natural things going on, there is something deeper. There's a deeper level. Um, another verse in, in um, uh, Galatians 4.8, it says he enslaves people. This is crazy. If you ever get a chance to go to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26, just listen to this. It says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of truth. So God, so literally, the Bible's about to say when you interact with people, we've got to be gentle, we've got to be patient when we interact with other people. And this is why he says what he says, that God may perhaps... Uh, grant repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Okay? So what the Bible would say, there was a moment in all of our lives, and maybe some of us are still living in it, that, that Satan has captured us, and we have not come to our senses. He has, he has allowed you to continue to think that the joys of this world and the pleasantries in which we experience are its, that you have arrived. But God would say, no, 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 no. You haven't even woken up yet. Like you've experienced a piece of a piece of a piece of what you think joy is. And so here now we see that the God has captured you, the God of this world has captured you to do his will. Man, Ephesians 2 talks about us being literally zombies walking towards the course of this world. Like we were dead. This is real. This is the world, world we live in. And, and, and I don't think, um, for some of you, I, don't, I do have to argue about it, right? Because when we read this story, I don't have to present some type of argument that demons are real. But matter of fact, it's maybe for you the opposite. Um, you, you might look at me and think, yeah, that's a great story that Jesus interacts with somebody and he heals the demons. But you're a little naive, bro, to think um, because that, that I can be rescued like that. You have no idea the brokenness, the loneliness, the hopelessness, the anxiety, the fear, the doubt, the anguish that I feel. And you continue to present that Jesus can save over and over and over again. But I'm telling you, I still feel this weight. And I would just argue, and I think we need to be wise as serpent and gentle as doves in some of these moments. So let me just stretch my hand maybe a little further than I can. But I, I would begin to ask the questions, how much of what we're going through is demonic? 
Like, so um, my wife, she's, she's had anxiety a lot over the last year and a half, and it's been really bad at, at moments. And we have to, like, begin to balance, right? So we change the way, well, she's changed the way that she's eaten and, um, and sleeps and, and, and physical. But there's also been moments in the middle of the night where we can't help but get up and just pray. Like, there's a both-and trigger going on here that we have to recognize. It's more, don't get caught up in the naturalistic, postmodern ideas that if we can't test it, it's not real. No, no, it's here, it's real, it's present, and constantly trying to, to suppress you and bring you down to a place that you would doubt. Very early on in the story, we get this, right? The very first thing that the serpent would have the man do is question what God truly said. This is real. This is absolutely present. Now, with that in mind, here's the beauty of all this. Um, here's the man in our story who is naked, he's desolate, he is, he is spouting off gibberish, no one knows what's going on, and Jesus heals him. And you know how this story ends? Because we haven't even got to the second part of our, our, our text yet. Um, you know how this story ends in the Gospel of Mark? It ends with Jesus in the exact same situation as this man. So uh, let me. So a quote by N.T. Wright, um, a modern-day theologian, has a great. He, this is what he says: At the climax of Mark, Mark's story, Jesus himself will end up naked, isolated, isolated outside the town among the tombs, shouting incomprehensible things as he is torn apart on the cross by the standard Roman torture, his flesh torn to ribbons by the small stones in the Roman lash, and that Mark is saying will be how the demons are dealt with. This is how healing takes place. Jesus is coming to share the plight of the people and let the enemy do his worst to him, to take the full force of evil on himself and let others go free. So if you were to step back in the macro version of what's going on in Mark, how does Jesus have authority? Because all the things that this man is going through, Jesus says, I'll go through it for you. So, so the hurts and the pain, I'll go through it for you. I'll take whatever demonic activity is being thrown at you and I'll go through it for you. This, let's not lose the forest and the trees here, y'all. The, 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 the legion and all that's going on. Here's the premise of this story. There is a man who was captured by evil and Jesus saved him. That's the story. Like I could have just got up, read it, and just said that. Jesus saves a man who is being oppressed by evil. But then the story goes on, and this is where I specifically want to talk to those of you who know that to be true and have experienced that. Because this is why we exist, and you've got to give me 15 minutes, because this is the core of why we've planted a church. This is the reason why we continue to press into the idea of Christians. We have been blessed to be a blessing. Let's, let's continue our text, and I promise I'll try to do this fast. Verse 14, this is what it says. The herdsmen fled and told it into the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed in his right mind and they were afraid so the city suddenly has heard about this guy remember crazy bill yeah we know he lives among the tombs so here he is he, he, he comes out all the people come out to see crazy bill who's suddenly sitting in his right mind that the word is so frost it's where we get our our word sobriety from he's sitting there thinking clearly okay he's thinking clearly about what's going on in verse 16 it says and those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon possessed man and to the pigs and they began to beg jesus to depart from their region so as the people are gathering around the people are saying yeah yeah, yeah i know this is what happened so he was over there jesus came and said and they're describing what has taken place and the people are listening going you got to go 
you need to get out of here. And they're afraid. And whatever, they're, they're afraid because they just lost a lot of money in the pigs. Or they're afraid because they're causing dis- he's causing disturbance amongst this small little town. Whatever it is, they say, you've got to go. But that's not how the man who had the legion responds. This is what it says in verse 18. And he was uh, getting into the boat, talking about Jesus. The man who had been possessed with demons begged him. So as Jesus is getting into the boat, a man um, who was possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. Listen to verse 19. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim the Decapolis uh, how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. So I, I just look at the beginning of verse 18 very quickly. This is bizarre to me. As he was getting into the boat. <laughs> okay, just can we know the big picture here? Jesus just got out of the boat. Look at verse 2. Jesus just got out of the boat, saw the man, healed the man, was asked to leave. Jesus gets in the boat. So he went through a storm, calmed that storm, just to go across the sea for one man. I mean, if Jesus is super intentional, everything he does has purpose. He knew crossing the sea was for one man to get out of a boat, heal this man, get back in the boat, and leave that area. And what's crazy to me is how many people needed to hear the story this crazy man just heard. How many people needed to be rescued from evil, just like this man. How many people in that land needed to hear it? And the man desperately wants to be with Jesus in this moment. But Jesus does something so amazing. He gives us a a precedent for mission that I think for us as Redemption Peoria, and I would argue as the church as a whole, needs to hear. He gives him two things that are Utterly important understanding our job as Christians when we begin to say we should talk to people about Jesus. This is what he says in verse 19. And he did not permit him to go with him, but listen to what he says. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has mercy on you. There's two amazing things. The first thing is this. He looks at the man as he's getting into the boat and he says, no, 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 no. You're not, you're not coming with me. But, but I want to come with you. Just no, no, no. Go to your friends. Go, go to my friends. Yeah, go to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. This, this, so um, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, even early 2000s, some people still do it. There were these things, and if you're not familiar with Christianity, called tracks. And the idea of a track is it, it basically tells the story of the gospel, and you would go to someone and you would hand them a track. Or um, maybe you, you're kind of afraid to bring up a conversation, and so you kind of slip it. Or now there's crazy, silly tracks. There's tracks that look like $100 bills. So when people are walking down, they pick up a, a $100 bill. They're like, yes, and then they open it. And FYI, like, you're just mad at that point. You're not like, oh, yes. No, you wanted a, a Benjamin, and now you're getting Jesus, and you're just upset. And so, and so there's these tracks that people w- would give, and there's pencils, and there's all these different things that kind of share this gospel, but it's, it's completely removed from, from this idea of, of relationship. And I love what Jesus says, because there's not even the word in Greek here. It doesn't even say friends. You know what it says in Greek? It says, go to your own. Jesus literally says, go to the people that you know, that are like you, that are your own, that you hang out with, go to them. You know what's crazy about this? The assumption is that he has friends who don't know the gospel. Yeah. So so the assumption in this whole context is, go to people that you are with that don't know the gospel. Because I need you to bring the gospel to people who are like you, who don't know the gospel. 
man, as us as Christians would, would stop with this removal of deep, intimate relationship with people because God has not created this crazy standard of strategic, here's how you go. Go to your own. Be friends with people. Whether that be you, you go to, to have a beer with them, whether that be you, you talk to your next door neighbor, invite them over for dinner. Be friends with people who don't know. Don't just be friends with people who do know. The assumption here is that this man has a lot of people who need to hear and are his own and are his friends. Are you tracking with me? Do you understand the importance of this? That Jesus in this moment just said, be friends with people who don't know the gospel. This is a big deal. It's, it calls us to relationship with people who, who we, we love and we care for, but don't, they don't know the gospel. That we would build relationships, not just so that we can say, hey, um, so let me walk you through something called the Romans road. No, like, 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 no, no. Eat with them, hang out with them, laugh at the same things they laugh at. And all the while you are this witness, right? Because you are in the world, but you're not of it. And, and maybe there's certain things that they'll find funny and, and they'll recognize you don't find funny and, and then you're just being on mission, but you are with them. God has given them to you to be on mission, right? But then there's the second idea, and I, and I love what he says. This is what he says at the, the end of verse 19. To those people who, who are your own, your friends, tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has, shown, how he has had mercy on you. Okay, so here's the deal. Maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, yeah, like, I get it. We should talk to people about Jesus, but I, I don't know, like, the right verses. Okay, and you know how much I care about the Bible and how much I think we need to keep it in front of us, but Jesus does not give us that. He does not say, I need you to, like, here's the man, the demon's like, okay, but you want me to go back to the Decapolis and talk to my own, but I haven't really read Deuteronomy and I don't know, quite know Genesis. W- what are you talking about? Just go tell them what I just did to you. Yeah, I I know that. I'll tell them that. But I I don't know how to lead them. Is there like a a fake $100 bill you've got or something, right? And so, um, no. I'm telling you what I just did to you. How you were, were oppressed. How you were trying to kill yourself. How the enemy had a complete hold on you. Do you remember that? Just moments ago, just tell them that story. This frees us up to not have the Bible memorized. Because every Christian in this room right now has one thing, the very thing that God has done in them. So you don't need swagger bravado, you don't need Pastor Sean or Jim or John or your community leader to bring them. No, you have your story. And I'm telling you, I've had the opportunity to preach at schools, on, at other churches, and it's not how many scriptures I rattle off, it's when I share the fact that I'm from a drug addict home, that I spent time in foster care, that I was homeless, that I made stupid decisions all along the way. Ten times as many people come up afterwards when I tell that story. And Jesus says, that's okay. He has given you that story. Tell them how much I have shown you, what's the word? Mercy. I've shown you mercy. You didn't deserve what has taken place. This is how Jesus presents it in front of us. This is, this is the beauty of sharing the gospel. Um, great, crazy story I just read 
guy named D.L. Moody. He's in the, towards the end of the, the 1800s. Um, he was going to a conference. He's this huge, like, evangelist, right? And the, the time where, like, getting up on a soapbox, literally, and preaching the gospel was a cool thing. He, he was, like, the one who was, was, like, the forerunner for that. And he's doing this, and he was going to a conference, teaching at this conference on mass evangelism, how to talk to a bunch of people about Jesus. And the conference was to, uh, was to start at 7, but, but he came out front at 6 and just started to talk to people about Jesus. And as he's talking to people about Jesus, there's more and more people gathering and he's recognizing he's starting to to clog the street so he says listen it doesn't start till seven let's come inside real quick and they go into this convention center thing they go into this big amphitheater and he begins to share the gospel to all these people and it's so crazy because as he's sharing the gospel with these spiritually hungry people who don't know jesus the delegates who are coming to learn about mass evangelism comes walking in and he has a great quote where he says this he says um Moody, Moody's in the middle of preaching, and he stops, and he says, Now we must close as the brethren of the convention wish to come in and discuss the topic, how to reach the masses. So his, his point is this. It was, it was, it was tongue-in-cheek to go, you want to come in and learn how to do these five steps to talk about Jesus. Just do it. Just talk to people about Jesus. Right? And, and you don't have to be the weirdo to do that. So I feel like there's three um, kind of categories we've broken down. I, I sent Josh the email, and I don't know if we have these three categories. So there's three categories that I can think the way we deal with our faith when it comes to evangelism. And I'll just read them verbatim. This is the first one is this, that we have a private faith. This is um, that we ha- the, this person has faith and non-Christian friends, but doesn't talk about it. So the example is the quiet friend who's never told you they were a Christian. So some of us live this life that we are essentially, we have this faith and we are around people who don't know Jesus, but we're kind of like, well, my faith is my own. Their faith is their own. I don't want to stir up the water. No, like, no, like the dude is stirring the water. Okay. So there's this first is private. The the, the second one um, is this personal faith. So they have faith and they talk about it, but has no non-Christian friend or has no uh, Christian friend. It should be non-Christian friends. Sorry. Um, the, the friend who wears the t-shirts, posts on Facebook, but sees sin as cooties. So the, the, this person essentially goes, hey, um, I'm a Christian and I tell everyone about it. I wear the shirt that says a bread, crumb, and fish, and and fish, right? I'm the guy who goes to the subway line and says, you know, how many people can that tuna sub feed? And like, I don't know, like one or two. I know a dude who can feed 5,000 with it, right? Like you're that guy, okay? You, you have... You have this, this, I talk about Jesus all the time, but there's a complete removal from non-Christians. It's very personal. It's very, you're a Christian, and then there's this, these other people who are non-Christians. And you're willing to share with people, but you're not willing to be in relationship. And the third one is this, and I think, and I hope that it's helpful. There's the public Christians. They have faith, and they have non-Christian friends, and they talk about their faith. This is a missionary. That we are called to integrate the two, right? That we are very adamant that we are Christians and we love Jesus. Um, but we're not like just wearing the t-shirts or we're not just handing out the tracts. But we're building relationships. And we're not, hear me, because we're not just building the relationships just to get them at the dinner table to immediately share the gospel with them. You know, Paul prays in Colossians 1 that he, he prays for opportunities for the gospel to be presented. So there's an assumption there that there are times not to share the gospel. There are awkward moments that you would go, this isn't the right time. Because hear me, this is, the whole premise of this is built on the idea that we think we save people. But we don't save people, y'all. We save zero people. We don't have to carry this burden on our back that our sister doesn't know Jesus. She's going to see hell and she's going to say, why didn't you ever tell me? That burden is not yours. You change no one. So sleep easy at night because Jesus 
changes people. The Holy Spirit wakes up people. But you know what that causes Christians to do? I want to be a part of what Jesus is doing. If it's Jesus who's doing it, I want to be a part of it. And so it's free to do. We are, we are public in our faith. We love Jesus well, and we're in deep relationship. The last story I'll close you with is this. Um, I am seven years old. I'm living with my mom, my mom's boyfriend, my dad, my dad's girlfriend, my dad's girlfriend's three kids, my aunts, my uncle, my four cousins, and it's a two-bedroom house. And we have no electricity and, um, because they've used it all on drugs and whatever it is. And my aunt and uncle, um, I've shared the story with some of you, are, are trying to push. They have a full propane tank, and they're trying to push this lantern, small propane tank, and they thought if they open both valves and push them together that the propane will go through. And immediately you go... That's what you would expect from meth addicts. And so they, they push this. They push, <laughs> it's like funny, but it's not funny. Um, so they, they're thinking to push it. Now, now here's where the, the, the biggest part of the, the, the foolishness comes into all this is they're doing this by candlelight, okay? So they're like, okay, you got it. You can do this. Now, I'm sitting in the, the living room, and I, had a, I remember very vividly, I had a stomachache, and I have a, um, one of my um, uh, niece and one of my uh, uh, cousins, younger cousin, Tawny, she was two at the time. Um, I'm sitting there on the, the uh, couch, and I just see this huge ball of fire come out of uh, one of the bedrooms. It goes, and then it sucks back in. And at first, I'm like, I'm seven. I'm like, I'm crazy, whatever it is. But then it does it again, and it goes back in. And right then, I'm like, okay, what is that? And then I see, and then the fire starts billowing out of this door, right? Now, here is my cousin who's two. I don't need to go to a conference. I don't need um, some type of pep talk to know to grab my two-year-old cousin there and get her out of the house. There was no, well, what if she tells her friends that I tried to grab her and there wasn't really a fire? Like, what if I look ridiculous? Okay. There's none of that in that moment. There's a fire. I need to get her out of the fire. So as much as I want to present, hey, listen, be at ease and trust Jesus in what he's doing. Jesus is very real in the fact that he is coming back. And you know the word he uses over and over and over again? Soon. He is coming back soon. So as much as there is a freedom in what the Holy Spirit is doing, there is this beautiful um, burden of the Lord that he has given us to save this two-year-old to save this child who does not even know that there's a fire behind them and that this fire is going to consume them. Because you know why? The God of this world has blinded their eyes. And these are our aunts, our uncles, our moms, our dads, our brothers, our sisters, our friends, our co-workers. That's them. That the God of this world has blinded them. And and I would pray, as I will in a second, that, that God would give them ears to hear and that we would be diligent about presenting the gospel because we too were the crazy man that Jesus rescued. And we want to be in a holy huddle. But he has said, no, 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 no. Go to your own and tell them how much mercy I've had on you. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for who you are for what you've done, for the greatness of this story that we hear. And though it feels so removed from our culture, this idea of demons and lots of demons, a legion of demons, we recognize there are demonic forces about what is going on in this world and that we as Christians would not be like those in the world who say it's foolishness, but we would recognize it is real and it's powerful. And we're also grateful for this story 
And as N.T. Wright said, that at the end of all this in the Gospel of Mark, you end up naked, desolate, crying out, people, not, people wondering who you're crying out to. You look like the crazy man. You look like the criminal. People put a crown of thorns on your head. You're the one bleeding. We thank you so much that you have saved us because of that. And, and man, our prayer in this moment is that the gospel would not end on us. That you saving us would not be in vain. That you would give us a deep burden to talk to our own. <laughs> to talk to our friends. To talk to our family. To talk to the people that you've put in our life. And that we would just wait, Holy Spirit, for you to tell us now. So Spirit, I pray for every single person in this, this room. They, they know the people you've given them. I can even immediately begin to, to process family members of my own. That, that, I, that in the moments where I'm having conversation, that I would be wide-eyed and, and, and uh, sober-minded to know when the time is right to present the gospel. I pray for their hearts. Every single person, every family member or friend that is in here, we pray for their hearts. We recognize that you've got to do the awakening, that, that you've got to stir them up. You've got to give them ears to hear, lest they will not hear. And so we pray that they would hear. We pray that you would save them, save our, our children who are young, save them so that they may know you and come to love you. May they call upon your name. May they love your bride, the church. May we as a people be about your business because you have shown mercy to us. May that be the mantra of our heart. You've shown mercy to us. You've shown mercy to us. You've shown mercy to us. We love you. We praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.